Welcome to the Bell Tale Rugby Podcast with me, Neve Campbell, me, Jonathan Bradley, and me, Adam McKendry. With expert analysis and special guests, let's kick off. Hello and welcome to Bell Tale Rugby. We're back after a wee hiatus due to various sickness and schedule reasons, but we obviously have lots to catch up on. And today we will be focusing on Ulster's last eight URC game against Connacht this weekend. We'll also be casting our minds back to Ulster's last match against Edinburgh, going over some new signings and departures and reflecting on this season's entire campaign as the end draws closer. Then of course there'll be the World Cup to get excited about too, with Ireland's training camp kicking off in June. As always, I'm joined by Belfast Telegraph rugby correspondent Jonathan Bradley and our sports reporter Adam McKendry. Adam, first off, we've got Connacht on Friday night. Ulster have already beaten Andy Friend's side twice this season, but they found real form in the second half of the campaign. And now they have Bundy Aki and Mac Hansen back in the squad. What are we thinking? Bundy Aki and Mac Hansen make them a much better team, that's for sure. You know, you saw them play against Glasgow in the final game of the season. They didn't quite hit the heights, but obviously they didn't have those two guys who are such key performers for Connacht. And I think more than perhaps any other team that are in the playoffs this season, Connacht do sort of need those bigger games, or sorry, those bigger names uh, available to sort of make make a run. But you're right, that they have been improving in the second half of the season. Ulster, we obviously saw them squeeze by them down in, uh, down in Galway during that tough run around December. And I think that'll probably stand in good stead to Ulster and that that was the one game that they did win during that during that run. Uh, so I would imagine they'll probably look at that and go even whenever we were in our sort of darkest moment of the season, we were still able to to pull out a result against this team. So psychologically that that is a massive factor to to go back on. But equally, whenever it comes to, to knockout rugby, a, a lot of things need put in the past and you need to focus on the future. And I know that sounds very cliche, but Connacht will know that this there's nothing really expected of them. They're coming up to Belfast. They're the seventh seeds compared to the second seeds. They know that their record in, in Belfast, even though it's been better over the past few years, is still not good. And they know that all the pressure is off them so they can go out and give it a lash and if it comes off then they're performing above expectation if they perform below expectation and and lose then that's what was expected of them so it's a very dangerous game for Ulster to have and I think you've also got to look at the fact that Connacht wanted this game uh, over going to South Africa so uh, there's something in there that thinks that they they think that they can get the win out of this game. Jonathan, Kieran Treadwell said he thinks this game has definitely got a bit of an edge. I think that's the best way to, I think it's a very good way to describe how they're feeling. Yeah, we've sort of, we've seen a few of these now, but um, in terms of interprovincial games as knockout games, but I suppose it's important to note that they are something of a rarity um, in a wider sense. And then even just the fact that you are playing somebody for a third time in the season, you know, that... Uh, familiarity breeds contempt saying um, is probably especially true in rugby and then as Kieran Treadwell pointed out there's people sort of jostling for position in terms of the World Cup squad which is you know even in a best case scenario you've only got three games before the wider squad 
um, for that's confirmed. So there's an awful lot of subplots to it. Um, it's interesting, I think, to look at it. You know, Ulster have won twice against Connacht already this season, as you sort of pointed out there, Neve. But, um, you know, Munster had beaten Ulster twice last year before coming up here for the quarterfinal and Ulster absolutely thumped them. So it's interesting to me, I think, how much those past games matter. It's obviously been a while since uh, Ulster played Connacht going back to just before Christmas and both sides actually were in really, really different places then and have been among the form sides in certainly in URC terms since that since that game both turned it around since really so I think Ulster are justified favourites I don't know if I think the ten and a half point spread that has been uh, bandied about in some places that to me seems a little bit large um, but I do think Ulster should have enough within them to uh, to advance to the semis well how if they're to win, and we're very much expecting that they are, how how much bay do you think? What are your what are your bookies predictions? I think if the spread was like one score, you know, if the spread was seven points, I think it would be uh, probably a more reasonable reflection of Connacht's form more than anything else. Um, not even so much to do with Ulster's form. We know that they're coming into this one five league wins on the spin, and. Um, if you take out that Leinster game in really a good run of form going back to January with only the Glasgow game, the other defeat. So I just, I personally don't see it as being the kind of game that we saw first up in Ravenhill this season where there really was a massive um, difference between the two sides on that night. Um, Especially as Adam says, you know, Hanson back, Aki back Connacht had 41 players available for selection so they've got having had injury problems throughout the season a clean bill of health whereas you know ideally Ulster would have Marty Moore Tom O'Toole Ian Henderson um, available to them obviously um, be interesting actually a tight head what the call would be if those guys were fit with Tamangal and haven't played so well but um Ulster have a few really big misses um, in terms of injuries as well. What do you think score prediction wise, Adam? And in terms of, do you know, where we're looking at a potential Ulster v Stormer semi final, and then Leinster v Munster. <laughs> let's maybe uh, let's maybe get past this game first because <laughs> I I don't think this is by any means a guarantee for Ulster. You know, I talked about having home advantage in the quarterfinals and the semi finals. Ulster at the moment aren't playing like a team who are overly convincing. You know, all right, they've gotten wins recently, but would you have said that win over Edinburgh was overly convincing? You know, they did let Edinburgh back in towards the end there. I would, I really want to see a lot more from them, and it could be that they're just timing it perfectly for the playoffs and that they're getting it spot on in terms of their preparation for these games. But... I would not say that Ulster are or have been convincing enough over recent weeks that I would say you can start looking ahead and going, well, let's think about the the Stormers. I think this game in particular, and I do, I do think they'll just squeeze by. I think they will win this game, but I think it's it's gonna be within uh, within seven. I I don't think they've been convincing enough recently 
that they can turn things around quickly enough for this weekend that they're gonna they're gonna have this wrapped up early. I, I think it'll be tight. And again, as I say, Connor knowing that nothing's really expected of them, I think they're gonna they're gonna make this close because they're gonna go out and they're gonna play. Especially as we know, you know, how Connor like to play under Andy Friend, who's got it this will be, you know, if, if they lost this would be his last game or they want to send him off, you know, potentially in, in a final as, as opposed to in a in a in a quarter final, you know they they will go out and give it all they've got and I think Ulster just have to be very wary. Ulster are the better of the two teams, but on current form based on what I've seen from Ulster, I wouldn't say they're guaranteed to win this game. And you were saying there that the same unconvincing and I know that's that's a theme Stephen Ferris has been running with recently and after that Edinburgh game he he'd written a column for us about that, saying, you know, he believes they're playing conservatively and they're lacking physicality. And this week, Johnny, you've been writing as well that he believes the potential unhappiness of the camp is due to a case of Dan McFarlane's team selections. Yeah, and I think to be fair, that's probably a best case scenario. Like, I know you can look at the quotes and say um, that maybe it ramps up the pressure or magnifies talk of unhappiness in the camp, but I think at this time of year, and we've seen even this morning, even though none of the players leaving were a surprise, you know, we've seen a list of absentees that is 10 long when there's only two players coming in. So obviously when players are coming to the end of their contract and they're not getting another one and they don't think that they're playing enough, there is going to be frustration and there should be frustration. I think whenever you look at the number of players leaving compared to the number of players coming in. It's maybe a tacit acceptance that the squad was too big this year. Um, You know, I did a piece a few weeks back about how the minutes have been shared out in various positions, and I think one of the more noteworthy takeaways from it was how many players had played very few minutes. And there's always positions where you sort of need an extra body, if you like. So, you know, along the front row, you need, for example, a fourth choice hooker in case you have two injuries to a hooker at the same time, but that's not happened Ulster this season. But if you sort of drill down further across the squad, you know, you've got two backup tens when really your actual backup ten has been Nathan Doak. Um, in the back row, minutes were really spread across a number of players and maybe with fewer players and therefore fewer options, you know, instead of having two unhappy players, you have one relatively satisfied player if those minute tallies are added together, if you follow me. So um, in terms of what Ferris was saying, like, I, you know, I don't think he's coming out saying um, there's anything rotten or anything like that in the camp. I think he's saying that um, all the talk that we have had of um, of player upset is down to what is the most understandable cause of player upset, which is there's only 23 players play every week and you've got more than 40 guys in your squad. So, well, like, Speaking of signings there and, and Connacht and game time in general, um, just to sort of round up everyone that, that is leaving and whoever's coming on, uh, Ulster squad members Declan Murr and Michael McDonald are moving on to Connacht for next season. As well as that, Ulster's double centurion Craig Gilroy will look to continue his rugby career elsewhere 
Um, Ulster forwards coach Roddy Grant, Grant says he believes the province is the best place for him to be in order to become one of the best coaches in the world after signing a new two-year contract extension at Ravenhill. So we've got him. And after all that as well, Ulster have only two signings, as you said, Johnny confirmed for next year in the shape of Stephen Kitchoff and Dave Ewers. Um, Adam, in terms in terms just of that, and I know Johnny was talking about the squad maybe was too big. Do you think the signings that Ulster are getting is, you know, best best possible return for people that are leaving? Well, the two guys going to Connacht, they really weren't getting much game time anyway. But what, do you think the future is bright then? It's the future bright. I mean, Kitchoff obviously improves your loose head stocks. Like, you're getting in one of the best loose head props in the world. So uh, you can't sit here and say that you're not improving your front row by bringing him in. And yours, I think, will be a very serviceable back rower. Uh, you know, he's not the same high-profile name as Dwayne Vermeulen. But if you look at, you know, the, the number eights that have done the best for Ulster in the past, Nick Williams is probably the one that springs to mind first because it, the, the problem that Ulster always have is they're never blessed with a massive wealth of guys who can carry the ball you know even in the pack that they have currently who would you say are the real dynamic ball carriers in Ulster's pack it's probably in Henderson Nick Timoney and beyond that there's not really all those many guys that you can reliably count upon to punch massive holes in the in the defense yours is a guy who will do that and it's why you see guys you know like Nick uh, Nick Williams, whenever he played, had such a massive impact. Not not the biggest name in the world, but one of the biggest guys in the pitch, and by goodness, did he use it. So I think yours is probably the profile of the guy that they want, which is someone who is a reliable ball carrier and can punch those holes. I think what they got in Vermeulen was somebody who managed to improve their set piece alongside Roddy Grant. I think he's been able to help improve that in terms of mentoring a few of the other guys into how to make them all into a weapon. But now I think they've got them all to a place where, and I, d- I don't want to say Vermeulen's surplus to requirements because that that's not the case. He's He is an extremely talented number eight, but I think you know his talent does not lie in those destructive carries that you that Ulster need from their number eight. So I think your Vermeulen fit, fitted the mold that they needed whenever they signed him. I think yours now fits the mold of what Ulster need now that they're signing him. Uh, and I, I would agree with Johnny. I think whenever you look at the numbers of how many how many games some guys are playing, you know, Frank Bradshaw Ryan is leaving having played one game. Michael McDonald is going out on loan having played one game. Declan Murray, I think, is leaving having played three games or something like that. You know, there's not enough minutes to go around for these guys or Ulster aren't willing to hand the minutes around for these guys. So you need to find ways to, if you want them to stay on your books, send them out on loan, as Ulster have done with Murr and McDonald. Or you've just got to hold your hands up and say, look, we can't give you the minutes. You, you can't keep guys on in your squad and to say we're going to give you minutes and then have them sitting on sitting on the sidelines every week. It's not fair on them, and it's going to result in guys holding a bit of resentment. So you need to keep give guys an honest assessment of where they're going to be. And I think for the unity and the harmony of the squad, I think that's important as well. So I would say Ulster, even though they're sort of 
there's a net decrease of players in terms of the number of players in the squad next season. The only position I'd be worried about and in terms of that is tight head prop, and I'm sure we're going to discuss that, but I wouldn't be too worried about the, the rest of the squad in terms of playing personnel and, and who they've got available. I, I think they have strengthened. You're saying you're going to want to discuss that? Do you agree, do you agree Johnny? <laughs> discuss it now. Well, it depends, obviously, how far Ireland go in the World Cup, really. Um, well, sorry, yes, I, I should clarify the, the, the issue I have with tight head prop is not the quality of the tight head props, it's the number of tight head props. <laughs> yeah. Quantity. It's that uh, third choice tight head prop, and it certainly looks at the minute like the third choice tight head prop is going to be Andy Warwick. His best position is obviously loose head, so... Um, we all know how important Jeff Tamanga Allen has been this season. Like, um, you sort of shudder to think how Ulster would have got on if he had not been there this year, and obviously he won't be there next year. So, um, you're really looking at Marty Murray's timeline of recovery, which should have him back before the season starts in what is a delayed start to the season, and how far Ireland go in the World Cup, and I suppose what shape Tom O'Toole comes back from that. Um, it's interesting I think to look at because obviously this time last year like we were sort of viewing Jeff Tamanga Allen as something of a luxury and then he very quickly became a necessity and it's I suppose weighing up which of those two situations was the reality because um, I think you'd probably be fairly unlucky for Marty Murr's injury to um, repeat itself, but obviously he's not getting any younger and Tom O'Toole will hope to be involved as much with Ireland next year as he was this year. So it is definitely a potential concern, especially around the Six Nations. Well, it raises a lot of concerns just in general. You know, Ulster have known that this was going to be a possibility for a long time. You know, they didn't sign Jeff Tumang Allen thinking he was going to be able to stick around next season. Yeah, they, I, th- I mean, I think to be fair, like, they always knew he was leaving. Yeah. He knew he was leaving. So where where has been the preparation for next season where they are not in a position where they might be left with two tight head props? All right, Andy War can cover across, but... Was there no sort of succession planning to think we need to give somebody some game time or we need to bring somebody else in? Like you're not you're now in a position where at the start of next season, let's say Marty Murr has a setback in his recovery. Are you going into next season where your two tight head props are Andy Warwick, who as we both agree, his best position is loose head, and you know, you're probably dipping into the academy for Scott Wilson or something who hasn't had any senior game time whatsoever. Like, is it is that the position Ulster have found themselves in? Has there been nobody who's sort of put their heads together and thought we could maybe do with another another tight head prop here? Like, you're feasibly one injury to Andy Wark away from throwing a guy in who's never had a senior game of rugby. And then who's your backup tight head beyond that? Like, also, if, if, we we don't know if Ulster have another tight head to announce, but if that's the situation that they're in, they're leaving themselves on very thin ice if they have two injuries. Like, 
if, if somebody can pull out a name of another tight head for the bench, feel free, but I'm not sure they do. You can tweet us your ideas at Belltel Rugby. <laughs> um, we're sort of looking at next season there and what's going to happen, but having a sort of mini reflection on the last season, uh, I know it's definitely not over yet, but Johnny, you had been writing in your column about like, you know, four weeks from now, there'll be many that'll view this season as a failure should Ulster lose to Connacht on Friday. You've also sort of been going over the the positives and without, this is so cliche, but it does feel like it's sort of been a season of two halves. What do you think, what are the, what are the highlights, the good things been, first of all? We'll start in the good, positive. I think it, like looking at the regular season and the European campaign, it's actually just a really hard season to appraise, I think. Certainly more so than any other season really in recent memory, I think. Um, purely because you did have that uh, nadir in December and January. And then I suppose as well, and this is another thing that Stephen Ferris was talking about, the reliance on the mall, as much as the mall has been a successful route to them scoring more tries than they scored last year getting more points in the league finishing higher up in the league uh, probably the reliance on them all lessened a little bit of the excitement that we had this time last year about what was um, the potential of such a young and exciting backline. so I think that's all sort of contributed into this idea that it doesn't feel like it has been as successful a season as maybe the last couple. And obviously, like, sort of like we were saying in the column, things will be decided essentially over the next three weeks. But I think if you were to look at, look for positives, obviously nine more points, one place higher up, which should they hold serve and beat Connors, would result in another home game, which is obviously very important financially as well, given the La Rochelle debacle in December. You've got the emergence of Tom Stewart, which has been sort of well talked about. And I think also the performances of Dave McCann recently, which have probably been talked about less so, but I think if you're looking at where you needed players to emerge, I think you've got two that have come through come through there and then finding ways to win in South Africa that was obviously a big talking point last year having lost three games over there to win um, to win two this year finally winning in Thoman Park certainly would be a positive and trying to think of another one just to round off but Muslim pass sale at home. I mean, yeah, like you know, they got a result against Sale, who and the chips were down. Were, exactly, you know, they needed a they needed a performance. They needed to win. Uh, certainly in the second half, they got that. And like, we spent an awful lot of this season, I suppose, <laughs> debating how good Sale actually are. We're still not that sure, but you know, they were high flying in England, so it was an important result. Yeah, I mean, the the obvious question comes around you know what do you class as success if if your only modicum of success is silverware then if Ulster lost to Connacht yes the season would be a failure but as Johnny outlines there are so many other avenues that it also mean that they had 17 bad seasons in a row <laughs> <laughs> but I mean if, if you classify as that as that a success for every team then you know you, you've got 30 odd teams around 
Europe <laughs> and technically South Africa who are having per seasons every season. So, you know, what classifies as success differs for each individual team. I'd I would say that there is there is a degree of failure in there and that I think Ulster are a team who are in that position where you know if, if you're challenging for silverware your expectation is to to win silverware but whenever you factor in a lot of other things no it's it's not a failure of a season um I think and as Ulster continue to progress I think eventually it will become of, and to be honest, it's it's where they should be aiming for, where you should be aiming for no silverware equals a failure of a season, purely because that means your expectations are so high that not winning silverware is a disappointment. But I don't think this season, if they were to, uh, if they weren't to win silverware, it wouldn't be a failure of a season. Well, I'll put it to you this way, because I think this is maybe the biggest struggle for people or why it feels so difficult to accurately judge it in comparison to other seasons. And we're sort of jumping ahead, but if Ulster were to win on Friday, win next weekend, and get beat by 10 points in the final, was this season better than last season? Because I think on paper it obviously would be. Yeah. But there would be a sizable contingent of people, I think, whether it just be the eye test, whether it be just the sense of things, and we you know, we spoke earlier about sort of rumbles of discontent, or whether it be coloured by how bad things seemed in December and January. But I think there would be a sizable contingent of people that wouldn't think this season was better than last season, even if Ulster got to the final. Well, again, it, it all depends on... You know what? What you class as a good season? You know, if, it, if you were to say a good it, season was like noticeable but like incremental improvements. Well, in- incremental improvements. Yes, it is a better season because if they got to the final and lost to Leinster, well, they've got to the final where they lost in the semi-final last season. They've got to the same level in Europe again. They finished one place higher than they did in the URC regular season last year. So. You know, by incremental improvements, yes, it's a better season. I wonder how much of it's down to individual form, though. You know, how many individuals improved, or how many individuals felt like they improved this year? Like, we talk about Tom Stewart and Dave McCann. Like, I think you can probably make the argument that Tamanga Allen was their second best player this year. He's obviously not going to be there um, next year, which doesn't, I suppose, help people's impressions of. Um, improvement and other than that you know who, who and again maybe it just comes down to the, you know the mall was so effective in such a high percentage of the games that they didn't use the back line as much and then it with the exception of Stockdale he had a horrible season through injury last time around and now in the last sort of couple of months um, has really looked like he's back on it. So, so that's a positive, actually, that I should have mentioned. But, like, I guess, would you think that any of those players, any of the other players, would feel like individually they had a better season this season than last time around? Because, you know, you go back to last year and we were sort of talking about a lot of those guys pushing on internationally and 
that's not how it's panned out this season, with the exception of obviously um, Kieran Treadwell had a great tour of New Zealand and then um, featuring there after through the autumn and the Six Nations and Tom O'Toole who took a, a big step forward through the Six Nations. Yeah. I don't know why I'm asking you all these difficult questions. It's all on you, Adam. Yeah, you, you, everything's, you got very, everything's got very existential. Well, the, and again, it, it, all, it all depends on what way you want to look at it. You know, do, does the performance of the team outweigh the performance of the individuals or do you worry about the performance of the individuals because eventually that might have a knock-on effect to the performance of the team? You know, if, if you're looking at it, I I would say... I would agree with you, John. I would say that you're probably looking at more players this season have taken a step back than have taken a step forward. And if you're looking at that in sort of a wider picture, at some point, does that mean you're going to have a knock-on effect where the team's going to take a step back? I think Ulster have done remarkably well to be in this position given the number of players that we would say have taken a step back and I think the mall has bailed them out on a lot of occasions I think the fact that they've been able to steamroll over a lot of teams has really helped them and you know as you know so it's all ifs and buts but you would like to know what Ulster season would have been like if their mall wasn't so dominant you know maybe the backs because they're getting more ball are still as dangerous as they ever were. They just haven't had the chance because the mall's been so good. Or maybe they're a mid-table team if their mall is just a mid-table mall. So I, I, I imagine you're going to have, you know, the, the likes of James Hume is coming off a pretty big injury. He's had a season where he hasn't had a consistent run throughout the year. You'd like to hope that with a full preseason under his belt and being able to get back and have a string of games at the start of next season, he'd be able to find some of that form that made him virtually unplayable at times last season. You would like to think that Mike Lowry, again, would start to hit back into a little bit of form. And then it's just a case of, you know, can you get them all to click at the same time? Because we know how dangerous Ulster's backline can be. They're not they're not their lethal selves right now, but we know that the the potential is there. The personnel, the only personnel that has changed is Jacob Stockdale coming back from injury. And arguably that should make you more dangerous than what you were last season, than, uh, than what you thought you were going to be. So... I would say you're probably just looking at a situation where, yes, there are players who have regressed this season, but it's maybe not a case of they've regressed permanently. It's more a case of they've just had a season where, for a variety of reasons, they haven't been able to to hit the form that they have. And it's a case of trying to work a way to get them back into that form again. And I think you have to acknowledge the injuries as well. Like you mentioned Hume, that's obviously been a massive a massive impact, the injury that he had. Falakun hasn't played a lot because mm-hmm. of various hamstring injuries. You know, you think about the highlights of last season and how many of them he was centrally involved in. Hendy's barely played. Will Addison hasn't played. You know, I suppose the injuries have been a huge factor. Well, I wouldn't even class Hendy and Addison in there because they play so infrequently. You can't really factor them into a consistent Ulster lineup. You know, you, you can't say, oh, if you brought Henderson back into this lineup that he would 
change it for for you know URC games. He he make it better for the big Champions Cup games and stuff like that. But he's seen so infrequently in the URC. I think it's not even really a a factor. And Addison, you know, quality player, but we haven't we've barely seen him in two years. You know, it's it, we know that he is a quality player, but you've got to factor in the amount of injuries he's coming back from. If you're going to get him back into that team, you've got to ease him back in. You can't drop him back in and go, we're expecting you to be the the touch paper in our back line. Speaking about teams as well, we actually, while we've been recording this, I've got an email um, about the teams named for the quarterfinal on Friday and I'm not go through it all, but noticeable things. Jacob Stockdale will make his 100th appearance for Ulster while Rob Herring is set to equal the all-time appearance record for the province. And just sort of moving on because we've got three weeks, as you said, of the regular season and then it's straight into June. We've got the World Cup training camp for Ireland and Johnny Saxton has said that he is basically definitely going to be training that following um, the groin injury he suffered during Ireland's Grand Slam campaign. Uh, positive positive news for the overall nation, Johnny. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think he was talking about how devastated he was to sort of not get the Leinster send-off and how he didn't really feel part of what Leinster are doing, which obviously now includes um, another European Cup final. But really, not from his personal perspective, but from the wider sense, it is obviously all about the World Cup. And you're looking at these three weeks and, you know, we even saw it with uh, Scotland's Johnny Gray um, with a bad injury last week, which will impact Scotland. You know, a subplot over the next three or four weeks is going to be injuries and their impact on the World Cup. We think that Ireland will name their wider squad at least, you know, the week after the final um, in order to get these big knockout games out of the way before they name their panel. Obviously, Wales have all, um, with none of their players, um, sorry, none of their regions involved in the playoffs have actually already named their squad. So it'll be a little bit longer to wait on Ireland. And I suppose it's just a case of touch wood and crossing the fingers that um, you don't see anybody miss out miss out in the World Cup because of injury over the next month I've got to admit I got really confused whenever I saw the initial headline of Johnny Sexton expects to be back for pre-season it's like when did I miss the announcement he was continuing on with Leinster but yeah. not with Ireland <laughs> yeah it's a weird it's weird terminology due to the World Cup mm. because to me it all it, it almost feels like a continuation of this season. Like this is a World Cup season, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean, rather than pre-season World Cup and then the rest of the season. Oh, for, for me, like the World Cup just kind of exists outside of everything else. And it's just kind of like, you know, pre-season is going to start back in September or mid-August or whatever it is for the ERC teams because the start of the season will be delayed. And everyone else is just kind of, you know, away for their warm-ups in, in the summer. It's, uh, pre-season to me just did not occur to me that that would be the World Cup. <laughs> when you look back at this year, it'll feel like the longest year ever because even like in other sports, I was saying, it's mental to me that the, pre- the Premier League football season is in the which was in the same season as the World Cup. Like that felt, that feels like five years ago to me by now. But um, anyway, yes, apart from that, moving on from the Ireland men to, unfortunately, a bit negative, the, the Ireland women and in the final weekend of the Women's Six Nations last week, Ireland just did not have a great time at all as they bowed out of the competition with a 36-10 thrashing by Scotland. Um, noticeably, it's actually the first time Scotland have secured back-to-back wins for the first time in 17 years. Again, that does not bode well for Ireland. Um, 
They didn't score once against England, who obviously went on to be the champions, and that's their fifth successive Six Nations uh, championship in a row. And Ireland just unfortunately just didn't didn't win one game, which is just in it's just in such a stark contrast to the men. Adam, where where do the girls, where do the women go from here? Let's look at the positives first. Sive <laughs> McGrath got her debut, had Ooh. a good lot of game time during the Six Nations. Uh, Brittany Hogan back in the squad which is great to see I think that's a, she's a very talented player um, who's obviously had her, her personal struggles as well which she's been very brave to talk about Neve Jones had, had one great game I think it was something like 26 tackles made none missed mm-hmm. which is an, an insane record to have in, in any game let alone a Six Nations game where the t- uh, the talent on show is outstanding Outside of that, there's not a great load of things to talk about from a, from a positive perspective. And, you know, the, there were actually a few things that you thought Ireland were half decently set up for this year. You know, they, they actually made a base for themselves down in Cork so that they weren't moving back and forth. They were... Uh, they were sort of set up. They they'd obviously had that tour to Japan last year, where you know they come together, but the performances just weren't there. You know, two tries in five games just is not a good enough return. And I think you saw just in in so many of the games, it it just looked like they were being outmatched in every facet. You know, from that first game, there was so much positivity going into the first Wales game where, you know, last season they had such a great game to start the tournament and it it sort of felt like, you know, oh, we, we owe you guys one from last year because you beat us on our home turf and it just ended up being so one-sided. The fixture list didn't really help them in that they followed that game up with, you know, thrashing against France but then losing in Italy was just, a, it, it was the real killer and, confidence killer but yeah and by the end you know you just kind of felt it was going the way if they were going to end up with uh, with no wins and it's really tough we had Neve Jones doing the column for us throughout the Six Nations and she was saying how much that they were you know they're focusing on the process and getting better and trying to make sure that they're they're taking it to the next level but you know that has to be accompanied by stuff on the pitch as well and we didn't see enough of that during the five games to suggest that Ireland are going the right way and it it's it's a tough road forward for them you know it, it looks like they're now going to be without Greg McWilliams it looks like he's going to be stepping down based on reports that we're hearing so they're going to have to go out and get a new coach and it's going to be tough to sell the Ireland women's team to them right now given they're just coming off of Six Nations where they haven't won a single game and to be honest they they weren't overly close to winning a game either so a long road ahead and a lot of rebuilding to do and it might be a situation where you're just going to have to strap yourself in and uh, endure the ride as opposed to enjoy it for a little bit until they they start to find something moving forward. Because we talked about before on the on the podcast, Johnny, you know, just in terms of like the lack of st- structures and support there for the women. Um, is it a case now of the at grassroots level, you know, getting that support there and putting actual proper structures in place to help the women get to that level, get to the same level as the men. Yeah, I think there's no quick fix to this, and this isn't a recent problem. This is an issue of not devoting the resources 
that are now devoted to the women's game 10 years ago, you know, to go from the Grand Slam in 2013, um, to go from beating the Silver Ferns in a World Cup to to be where you are now isn't one misstep. It's a series of uh, of large missteps and... I suppose, yeah, like Adam's right, you know, that Wales game, I suppose, felt like the start of something in terms of moving out of the sort of cloud of toxicity that had existed through the uh, the fallout from not qualifying for the World Cup. But, um, you know, to fall into uh, the third tier, um, the third tier competition is a big blow. It means that you're not going to be testing yourselves against the uh, the best of the best or anything like it, really. I mean, I suppose the flip side of that is you could get a couple of wins and try and build some confidence. And then with another new coach coming in as well, you're sort of wondering, you know, does that mean that you need, it, you know, is it another fresh start? Because does that mean that the last year or last two years, I suppose, um we're almost wasted in a way because, you know, we talk about not qualifying for the last World Cup, but we're not massively far away from needing to qualify for the next one now. So um, I suppose some semblance of form and results needs to be found in the short term so that you don't fall even further behind because um, it feels like everybody else and I suppose most especially Wales, but, you know, you mentioned those stats about... um, Scotland and how long it's been since they've had results like this. You know, it feels like everybody else is getting better. Mm-hmm. And as you said, Johnny, Ireland are now bottom of the Six Nations only eight years since they were champions and they'll spend two years in the bottom tier of the world rugby system. And moving on to my side note here of other news, the last thing I want to talk about today, the Ulster Rugby CEO has finally confirmed our Belfast Telegraph exclusive story, I think it was from February, that Ravenhill will be applying for a 3G pitch. <laughs> So that's, I think we already knew that, but the fact that it's actually been officially confirmed, we were officially confirming it here anyway. Well, the thing is, Ulster only officially confirmed it after someone discovered that they had uh, put an application in for planning. Like, you can't <laughs> oh, exa- better make a statement. <laughs> yeah, you, you, can't, you can't exactly deny that you've put in an application for planning. Like, it's there in black and white. But, um, yeah, d- different people have different opinions on this. You know, you can look at it one way. You obviously cut down on groundskeeping costs because you don't need to maintain a grass pitch ever every day you also are able to use it in all weathers you know we've seen the raven hill pitch can get really cut up at, at times and especially whenever they're having all their club finals which i i, I don't disagree with I, I quite like the fact that you know you're playing towards having the town's cup final um and, and all those junior cup final senior cup final you're getting your big day out at raven hill i think that's a really good reward for clubs but you eventually get to a point where you're looking at the pitch and it's like, this pitch isn't really per condition because of the workload it's been under. You don't have that with a plastic pitch. You know, you you, you can have games on it back to back and it won't suffer at all. So it's, it's a benefit from that regard. But also you've got to look at the reports that there are more injuries on those pitches. You... Uh, you do still have maintenance costs. It's, it's not like it's a once you put it in, it's free. You, see, you still have to have to look after it. So th- there are pros and cons. I think it, you know, down the line, I think it'll just become a moot point. I think 
you know, people obviously have their opinions at the start, but after it's been in for a while, I think people just treat it as the pitch. I, I don't think there's going to be any uh, any more concerns. There will be a little bit of an adjustment period, I'm sure, because, you know, players are so used now to Ravenhill and it being a, a grass pitch that they'll know roughly what it's like. Whereas, you know, whenever you go to the, the Arms Park or... or I know Saracens have have their plastic pitch in. You know, you, you do have to adjust to the bounce of the ball and stuff like that. But eventually, it'll just become the Raven Hill pitch, and I, I don't think it'll be too much of an issue long term. Mm-hmm. Johnny Petrie did just talking about. You know, we were saying it'll be. I can just only imagine it'll be a lot sore. Um, you know, even just falling, for example, on on a three G pitch. But he has insisted that player safety is also his priority. And other than that, for all the news, views, and analysis of rugby, remember you can catch. Jonathan and Adam's ratings and reports both in Belfast Telegraph and the newspaper and of course online at belfasttelegraph.co.uk and you can also send us your thoughts on the 3G pitch and anything else at Belltail Rugby on Twitter. Until then, we will see you all next week. Bye.